0: Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I am doing okay. How are you? I'm pretty good. I must confess, I am still jet lagged from that trip to Singapore, which was fantastic, but it's a 17-hour flight. It is the longest I've spent on a plane, and it's flying pretty much east-west, and I went through a bunch of time zones. I have never had this problem persist for this long, so if I am a little sleepy on this podcast, uh, well, yeah, you might have to wake me up a couple of times. Let's see how we go. Well, I would just make two points. One, welcome to getting old. <laughs> and, and two, you know,
1: thanks for accepting blame for us not having a podcast last week. Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that. I will take one for the team. No, no, no. It was actually my fault we did not podcast. You were ready to power through. You are the trooper in this relationship. I have to give you full credits. I'm the one that declined. So. But we are here. We are here with, with
0: with a very large topic to discuss. Yeah, you certainly this week did not bite off a small topic. I will definitely grant you that. It was actually a multi-part bite-off. I was thinking
1: a lot about the sort of Amazon Walmart grocery angle. I was thinking about it all weekend. I kind of want to write a big piece about it. And it just wasn't really quite coming together. But I felt that specific point was worth highlighting. So I wrote about it on Monday. And then I went back to think about some more. I'm like, you know, actually, I know the bigger point I'm trying to make. So I kind of wrote it again on Tuesday. So my appreciation to all the subscribers for being sort of beta testers, of, or at least the early version of the idea that I was going for. It's a big idea. I'm looking forward to exploring it. So I started out in this article, and I think it's a good place to start this discussion with when Amazon bought Whole Foods back in June of 2017. At the time, there was sort of like widespread panic. <laughs> you know, like I put that graph in the article about how all the grocery stocks sort of plummeted. And actually, a lot of them have not really returned to the levels they were at. But even still, there was, you know, the sense that Amazon, big bad Amazon that sort of dominates all of these categories of niches is coming to this market. Quite clearly, everyone is screwed. What's interesting about it is the explanation for everyone was in trouble kind of, if you looked at it, really reduced the fact that it's Amazon and Amazon is scary. I picked this quote in here and there was a wide variety to choose from. I just happened to pick this one mainly because they had a nice graph that I could kind of borrow. But they quoted an analyst who said, we can only imagine the technological innovation that Amazon will bring to the purchasing experience for the consumer. And if you think about it, as far as analysis goes, it's pretty lame. You're like, oh, we can only imagine. I'm not nearly smart enough to figure it out. And it's funny because we've seen this sort of thing before. There was an article I wrote in the very early days of techery. And I've talked about this before with techery where when I started, Apple was sort of under the guns because for the first time, I think it was the iPhone 5, the iPhone grew, but the growth had pretty dramatically decelerated, which is they had been growing at 70, 80 percent, you know, year over year. And they only grew like 20 percent or, or something on those lines. I'm pulling those off the top of my head, but it's in the ballpark. And, you know, that was Samsung's ascendant. And the iPhone is doomed because it's not modular and, and it's not open and blah, 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 blah. And I wrote this article at the time called Apple, the black swan, which kind of pointed out that the problem with so much analysis around Apple is that because people didn't really fully understand or grox sort of the benefits in the consumer market in particular that came from a superior user experience that came from having that integration of hardware and software that came from sort of controlling the whole stack and also the sort of things we've talked about that just the absolute numbers of iOS being large that they were faced with this okay all our sort of theoretical ideas say that Apple should fail and we've you know we've had discussions about theoretical ideas saying Apple should fail but the obvious evidence on the ground is that Apple is succeeding so why do they succeed and the answer for a lot of folks was not unlike this guy saying, I can only imagine what Amazon's going to do in the case of Apple as well. Steve Jobs is a magician. Like that's basically what it sort of came down to. And the implication of that is once Steve Jobs was gone, well, Apple must be doomed because they didn't have a working model of how Apple could succeed other than sort of Steve Jobs being a genius. And I felt this was sort of a similar dynamic here is they
0: succeed by magic because we certainly can't figure out any other way they might succeed. I appreciate the comparison. It's interesting though, because it's kind of the opposite. In a sense, Apple's failing for this reason. And yet, on the flip side, this isn't Amazon failing. This is Amazon going to succeed. Oh yeah, you're right. It's like the exact opposite. It's like Amazon, the entity, just will
1: magically succeed, whereas Apple, the entity, will magically fail because it's like, where is the magic pixie dust just attributed to? In the case of Amazon, it's attributed to the company broadly. In the case of Apple, it was attributed to one person.
0: Right. And I mean, in this guy's this poor guy's defense, and he's like probably getting a lot of traffic as a result of being called out in your daily article. We've talked about how these. Tech tech companies are these highly evolved predators and they've been fighting tech on tech and they're slowly starting to move out into other industries. And you are seeing like Netflix, Amazon in some aspects, Airbnb and Uber, and how they're moving out into the world and being successful. So you can see at first blush how people will think that. And you can also see the stock market react in exactly the same way with all those share prices. I think what's interesting about this is something about this assumption that they can be dominant in all aspects isn't proving true in this instance. And that's what I appreciated so much about you digging in on in this article. Yeah. I mean, let's start with the one super duper important caveat.
1: These are very early days. It's only been a year and a half since Amazon acquired Whole Foods. Amazon definitely deserves sort of the benefit of the doubt generally. So I'm not, you know, I can certainly understand this guy's sentiment and it's a lesson that I've sort of learned the hard way. Like don't don't doubt Amazon because they will figure it out. And the huge benefit that they have just generally is the willingness and sort of permission from the market generally to invest in the very, very long term. So without question, the Whole Foods play in the growth grocery play. Amazon's looking at it as a 10-year sort of investment and seeing what it will pay out. But actually, the thing is, and that's interesting, is that doesn't really change anything about what I wrote. It doesn't even change anything about what I wrote at the time of the Whole Foods acquisition when I wrote that article called Amazon's New Customer. Because if you go back, let's go back to that sort of Amazon's New Customer. What I was pointing out in that article is that Groceries are a fundamentally different market than e commerce. And I highlighted that they're sort of fundamentally different in three important respects. One, with non-perishable goods, there's practically like an infinite number of non-perishable goods in the world, right? And the ability that in the sort of key differentiator that Amazon has always brought to the table is sort of like superior selection. Like, we have basically almost everything. Whereas when it comes to perishable goods, there just aren't that many perishable goods in the world that you might want to purchase, right? How many kinds of meat are there? How many kinds of vegetables are there? Like, there's a lot more than the average person might realize, in part just because there's, you know, all around the world, people eat sort of different things. But even then, at the end of the day, there's just not that many things, which means that sort of core differentiator that Amazon had from day one in e-commerce is not necessarily a point of differentiation in grocery. So that's number one is just the selection criteria is different. Number two, with non-perishable goods, quality is predictable and consistent, right? A book is a book is a book. You know, that's not the case with food. You can have in one skew, you can have multiple levels of quality, right? You can have an apple and a rotten apple and they're both the same skew, but you obviously want one and you don't want the other. So that's difference number two. And then difference number three is perishable goods go rotten, right? That good apple and that rotten apple may have been the exact same quality, two days ago. And today they're different quality because the one went rotten, the other one didn't. And so my point in that article is the reason why Amazon, in my estimation, was acquiring whole foods was that they were acquiring whole foods because having stores actually solves a lot of these problems. If you have a store, well, you have like a sort of an additional outlet to for these perishable goods. You have a place to put them all. You have customers already accustomed to coming in and helping you do selection on your behalf, you know, picking out the good ones from the bad ones and you have customers coming on a regular basis because people are hungry and they eat their food and they need more food to come in and get stuff before it goes rotten and also you actually have sort of built-in delivery because people are actually carrying the groceries home for you. So you're actually covering the last mile. And so stores actually solve a lot of the problems with groceries very efficiently. And what I sort of posited that would let Amazon do is by having an already established way to deliver groceries efficiently, then they could layer the grocery delivery on top of that in a way that make economic sense, as opposed to building up grocery delivery from the ground up with just sort of like the warehouse delivery, you know, fulfillment center model, which would never make sense because the costs of rotten food
0: would quickly over. any sort of efficiencies that you might gain. Right, that makes total sense. And I think like a lot of people, including our poor analyst, when I saw this deal, I was like, they are going to crush it. And what's interesting is the initial results seem to suggest that that's not the case. So when that article came out, I interpreted it as you being really bullish on the reasons for Amazon making that acquisition the initial results are starting to come out and it looks like there was a Bloomberg article that was quoting an annual consumer survey by UBS and it looks like the number of people who are using the Prime Now delivery service, which is the rationale in part for buying Whole Foods, that number is starting to decline. And this feels like as good a point as any to ask you whether you're starting to change your mind around whether that was a good acquisition or not. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm just going back
1: and reading this article. I didn't really express like this is a great move or a bad move or this is going to work or not work. But that is a definitely covering my ran sort of statement because the reality is, is I think I had the same perspective as our friendly analysts that we're kind of making fun of here. Whereas you just kind of assume that it would work and make sense because it's Amazon. And of course it would work and make sense. And what's funny is actually the article, I think, stands up extremely well. And I don't actually have to change anything about that article, except probably like the assumption that I didn't even state in the article because we all kind of felt it, that this is Amazon. Of course, they're going to succeed. Like maybe that's the part that actually needs a little bit of pushing back. You know what I mean? Because if you go back and think about that article, the implications of that and and sort of the second part to your citing that Bloomberg survey, which again, we don't have no one's reporting sort of hard data about this stuff. So there's a bit of conjecture going on here for sure. But at the same time, Walmart is investing hugely in expanding their grocery service. Their grocery service has two So one is a grocery pickup service where you order everything online, you go to the store, and they just put everything in your car. And the second one is where they actually do deliver to your home. And naturally, the first one is expanding more rapidly than, than than the second. But we can get into we'll get into both in sort of a moment. They said basically their e-commerce has improved a ton over the last year, has grown a lot, and they were quite clear in their call that it's because of groceries. Like groceries is what is growing you sort of first and foremost. Second one was sort of picking up the toy void left by Toys R Us, but groceries is clearly a huge sort of driver for them and we also know that instacart is doing quite well and they're in the grocery sort of delivery service despite the fact that everyone sort of sounded their death knell when amazon came along and if you back up and you actually look at this piece amazon's new customer and think about what i was saying there Actually, this makes sense because what was Amazon doing? Amazon was basically spending by far their largest acquisition ever, $13 billion, to acquire a completely different way of doing business, right? They had to get into the stores because it turned out the sort of value chain. We're going to get into the definitions, sort of stuff in a moment, but the value chain around groceries is just really, really different from e-commerce. And so this week's article is almost a part two to that, which is where part one, I laid out back then why groceries is very different. At the time, I didn't fully think through the implications of it being very different, whereas today's about the implications. If it's very different, then actually this move by Amazon deserves probably a lot more skepticism than any of us gave it at the time because moving into different values value chains is a very, very difficult proposition.
0: Yeah, not to steal the thunder coming up later in the show, because this is something that I definitely want to dig in more on. But this notion of Amazon having a first best customer, like the best way of illustrating that was how they initially developed AWS. And everybody's like, well, look how that turned out. And they're replaying this strategy again in a different market. And the assumption is it's going to turn out exactly the same way. But there are some pretty interesting differences between them, right? Yeah, for
1: sure. We definitely
0: need to get an AWS because I think it could go both ways It's either
1: the best counterexample of what I'm saying or actually it might be the best sort of supporter of what I'm saying. That's called foreshadowing. Uh, but, But so step back, let's look at Walmart instead. Walmart, it turns out, has tried for many years to go into e-commerce, you know, unsurprisingly, Amazon is coming in and and Walmart has this very sort of, they've been all over the place as far as e-commerce goes. They had this crazy strategy that I described in another article, put in the show notes called, you know, Walmart and sort of the multi-channel trap where they were going to have this strategy where we have different delivery tiers because we're going to take advantage of our stores and we're going to have a fast option. We're going to have a faster option. We're going to have a fastest option. Uh, and like, it's, we be, it worked out as terribly as it sounds when I just described it. Because what they did was, Back in the day, they tried to build their entire e-commerce sort of operation around the fact, well, we already have tons of distribution centers. We already have all these logistics. We own our own trucking fleets. We have all these stores everywhere. We should leverage this to dominate e-commerce. But actually what that did was cost them years, literally years of competition with Amazon, actually decades arguably of competition with Amazon. Because the problem is what is actually necessary and what is winning in e-commerce is different. It's a different value chain than what matters for supplying stores for all those things are the opposite, right? With e-commerce, you want to have a huge selection. Well, if you're sort of like trying to incorporate your stores into your e-commerce efforts, by definition, you're incorporating a limited selection entity into that, which is kind of works against the goal, right? That's why they had the fast, faster, fastest, the fastest would be stuff that's in the stores, but the fast was, Oh, all the other stuff that we have to also stocks, we have a full selection, but then, you know, what's the value prop to the consumer. It's getting super confusing. And I could just go to, Amazon, which has this all, it's very clear what Amazon does. No, you're not going to get it immediately, but you go to Amazon, it's going to have what you want, it's going to show up in two days, right? And just the clarity and the focus, and not just that, the entire cost structure and the way the business was set up for Amazon was all set up around this idea of having a huge amount of selection and be able to get to your door in two days or less. Whereas Walmart, the complexity that they were trying to put forward was actually far more costly and much more difficult to compete, but they were so stuck on how can we leverage the assets that we have? They were trying to take all these assets that were built for one value chain, which was stores, and trying to put them into a different value chain, and it ended up being just a huge mess. And at the time when I wrote that article, the reason I wrote it was because they had just acquired Jet.com, and to the extent their e-commerce has done better since then, it's because they've completely separated it. They realized actually trying to tie these two things together is a loser's game. We have to actually build an e-commerce operation from scratch, and they're doing better. They have like four or some percent of the market, but Amazon has like 48% of the market. You know what I mean? Like it's a pretty tough hole, but at least they realized we can't just look at ourselves and assume we have advantages because we're big. We have to actually think about how does this value chain actually work and build a completely new
0: entity that actually starts with those assumptions. The irony being, of course, except for groceries, for all the reasons that you stated before, around there are a limited number of SKUs and the notion of freshness, actually getting groceries out on the ground in the stores and using that as a basis for getting it to customers, that is an exception to everything you just said. That's right. That's what makes it so interesting.
1: Like all the mistakes that Walmart made relative to Amazon. Amazon basically made relative to Walmart in the case of groceries. They tried to use their traditional, their existing value chain and try to sort of plug groceries into it. It didn't work. So to solve it, they went out and bought a different entity that already had that sort of value chain in place. And now they're trying to start from there. It's the exact same thing, but in sort of the opposite direction. And so, yeah, to go to Walmart today, why are groceries working so well? Well, they already have all that sort of infrastructure that Amazon is trying to build out, Walmart already has it. And it's way more widespread. It covers way more people than Whole Foods does. And not only that, but this idea of not only do you already have sort of a lot of the infrastructure in place, but you're so much freer to iterate on these sort of models. So I think the most compelling thing for the Walmart grocery thing, for example, is the pickup idea. Because what's one of the hardest issues in sort of e-commerce? It's the last mile. How do you actually get stuff to people's houses? Well, it turns out if you can effectively hire people to cover the last mile on their their own. That makes things a whole lot easier, but it works. Why does it work? Because the Delta is still a massive improvement, right? People were already accustomed to going to the store and getting to their stuff. So if you improve that from you go to the store and you're at the store for less than five minutes, and then you go home First you have to go in and walk through the aisles and try to find everything. So you're not just, so previously you had to be a delivery driver and a picker. So what the new service does is, oh, we'll do the picking for you, but you're still your own delivery driver. And then there working. Working on adding, oh, we'll deliver it as well. But they're in a place to do that sort of iterative sort of build out and make it incrementally better for the consumer because they already have the value chain in place to do this. And Amazon, and the big challenge here is they will get there, I'm sure, and they're working on getting there, but they're starting way behind. Like they're coming from way behind. They have to build out way more stores. They have to build out this idea of people being willing to be their own delivery drivers. And they're starting from a much more difficult position than Walmart is just as, and again, the perfect analogy, the way Walmart was starting from a much more difficult position. in in e-commerce compared to Amazon.
0: Yeah, there are a couple of interesting things there. One is just they're almost hijacking or leveraging the existing customer behavior. You expect to have to go out and pick up fresh food on a weekly or a relatively regular basis. And if that expectation is there, but you make it easier as opposed to completely changing the behavior, then like you said, that delta's smaller, but the behavior is already there and leveraging the behavior. The other thing is just you think about Whole Foods and that acquisition is like, oh, this is a premium grocery brand. That's fantastic. But this is an instance where having scale and distribution and actually maybe being more in the middle of the market, but having greater reach actually works much better for you than the perception of the brand.
1: Right, for sure. And to be clear, Walmart, I think, is just the easiest one to talk about because they're much more of sort of a a fully integrated model. And and you look at them and compare them very easily to Amazon. And plus, I love the juxtaposition of their e-commerce efforts versus Amazon. But again, I mentioned sort of Instacart, for example. And Instacart talked about at the time, oh, we signed up all these new partnerships after Amazon acquired Whole Foods. And if you think about it, yeah, that makes total sense because they are coming along at the perfect time with the sort of service to layer on top of these other grocery stores that are out there. And they're more of a we're going to do both the picking and the delivering, which to your point, it's actually might be a little more difficult. It's more convenient, but you're changing consumer expectations You know, perhaps more stridently versus you drive by that Walmart every day anyway. If you live in the suburbs, might as well just pull in and pick up your groceries. But again, you see success sort of broadly in this industry. And this is the key thing every day that Amazon is not sort of competitive, they are falling further behind. And this is what happened again, just to beat it into the ground, is what happened to Walmart with e commerce. Every day they tried to dink around and use their existing model and didn't actually commit to doing it the right way, they were falling further and further behind. And frankly, they're still sort of losing money on their core sort of e-commerce business, or at least that's, again, it's very frustrating that neither of these companies sort of disclose enough around this. So you kind of have to read into, like I read all the reports and I read their earnings calls and stuff, but they definitely got the impression they were definitely losing money still on e-commerce. And you have to wonder, I, I don't know if they're going to ever really make back sort of the investments that they're doing in it just because it's not what they do and it's not what customers expect from them. And everything about their business is sort of built around a different value chain. And it's funny, you think about it, and this is the thing I was driving at this article, you think about about it. Retail is retail. E-commerce is e-commerce. How different can it be? And the answer, it can be dramatically different because you can't just look at the surface level. You can't just look at the way it's experienced by consumers. You have to back up all the way through the entire value chain from how suppliers come in, where your internal buyers do, your fulfillment centers, your distribution, all the way through the value chain. And if those value chains sort of differ significantly, to go from one to the other, it's not just super expensive. It's actually you're at a disadvantage because one you're going to think you have an advantage and go the wrong way way too long. And then two, just to get into softer matters, your sort of internal way of thinking about the market and your culture and all those sorts of things are going to be misaligned to sort of the new opportunity. Oh, and three, just to add a third one, sort of the consumer expectations of you are just misaligned, right? Yes, people, you like Walmart, for example, with their e-commerce, they talked about a big problem with their e-commerce operation is they have a hard time getting repeat customers, which suggests people will go to Walmart.com because they have found it through like Google search or something like that. And they got a cheap item, but there's no loyalty there. There's not like, I'm going to start my search and go to Walmart. Whereas Amazon just lives on repeat purchases, people going there all the time. Why? Because what they represent in people's minds and their expectations are very different. And all those three obstacles are far more substantial than I think most people looking at companies moving to new markets appreciate.
0: This is really interesting. So we're starting to get at a theory of explaining when these companies are going to be successful and when they're not. And when I think of theories, I think of it at three levels. One is almost like a categorization and and think about like a genus of species, like this type of bird is not that type of bird, is a different type of bird and the different species. And then a level above that is like explanatory, which is you take what is going on and you can explain the effects of what's happening. The third one though, which is the one that you really want to strive for, because this is the one that lets you peer out into the future and figure out whether something's going to happen rather than look in the past and explain what has happened, which is predictive. And that's the one that everybody wants to get to, because when you see news, you know what's going to happen. It gives you an edge, whether you're an investor, whether you're a manager, whatever, you can actually start to figure out what's going to happen. And When I read this, that was the lens on which I was taking it, and I greatly appreciate the zooming out and trying to drive at the causal factors. The question that I immediately had when I read it was, is this explanatory? Is this like, okay, we're seeing what's happened and now I explain why it's not working, or was the outcome of this perfectly predictable from the outset? And naturally, the counterexample that came to my mind was AWS. AWS, very different value chain, or it felt like quite a different business to me than what Amazon's core business started as. And yet they managed to be super successful at it. So I guess the question that I want to push you on, do you think it's explanatory or do you think this view of things is predictive? Well, it's interesting because
1: I noted this week that I kind of wrote about this twice. And the first one was explanatory the first time I wrote about it. And the second one was sort of making the case that this is predictive. So if you want sort of like an example of exactly what you're referring to, I think uh, the fact I wrote about it twice this week kind of fits in that. You know, It's a question that's very subtle and difficult to answer. Because for example, let's start with groceries, then we'll get AWS question. I think that to the extent, let's grant for the moment that what I'm saying is right and it is predictive and it is a useful way to look at companies, then you can go back and say, in some respects, we're looking backwards at groceries and seeing that they are kind of struggling and that Walmart's doing well. And so from that perspective, it is explanatory, but I think it's explanatory in a way we could have seen this at the time of the purchase if we thought it through. And that's why I kind of want to go back and point out that the article I wrote at the time actually stands up very, very well because what I did in that article was I explained how this value chain is different, right? I didn't have all the pieces at that time, but I think I would stand by that article as being proof that there was a predictive part of this because I did half of the prediction. I just didn't sort of finish it off, if that makes sense. So the question then, you take it to AWS, and I'm going to make the case that I think AWS actually does fit with this, but I'm going to make it with sort of the caveat and the humility that I'm making that case looking backwards from where we are today to sort of that era, you know, the mid 2000s and saying, yeah, actually it does make sense, but without sort of the confidence that I would have been able to predict this at the time, would I have been able to draw the lines that I'm about to draw at the time when I was looking at it? And it would be extremely sort of arrogant and unfair and incorrect of me to say that that would definitely be the case. So I just want to sort of put that out there before we get into this, because I'm going to argue that. I think it is predictive and I think AWS does fit in the model, but I'm saying that with the benefit of hindsight, where hindsight by definition is explanatory. So we'll we'll have to see how it plays out sort of in in the long run. The next time one of these comes along, we'll have to apply it and see how it goes. So I think the reason why, even at the time and even now looking back, and this is maybe going to go against what I just said, where the response being that AWS was different it's not so dissimilar from saying, well, e-commerce is e-commerce, right? If you look at it from sort of a surface level and you don't look at it from a value chain perspective, it seems extremely different. Like in one case, we're selling like computing services to developers. Another case, we're selling you know diapers to parents in Ohio. Those seem like pretty dissimilar sort of things. And how is it that the one company can sort of produce a product in the other space? But that's my entire point here is you don't want to get, stuck on the surface. You want to dig underneath the surface. I mean, go back to Netflix, one of the examples I used in the article, you know, sending objects by mail is very different than sort of like streaming things over the internet. It seems like very different sorts of things, but as, you know, they're kind of the same thing. So I think actually the place I want to go is Google and Google Cloud, which was, I think, the other product and company that I spent the most time on in this article. And I think it might be useful in getting at why I think we can look back and this sort of model can accommodate sort of how it is that AWS came out of Amazon. We can do that by looking at the fact that Google Cloud, which is a similar product to AWS, seems to be struggling or definitely is struggling, I think, you know, relatively speaking. And let's look back up big picture. How is it that Amazon that was selling diapers to parents in Ohio could come up with AWS, but Google, which is building servers and infrastructure, and is that's their specialty, seems to be struggling in the cloud? If you look at it from a sort of a surface analysis and just present it to someone, say, which company do you think would do better in this area? Almost everyone would choose Google, right? After all, they're used to building this sort of stuff. What does an e-commerce company have to do with selling services? Uh, It's a very good question. (laughs) (laughs) So actually, that's why I think this is a very useful example, because Google is the one that should have worked if you're using the sort of surface analysis. But – If you look at the value chain, then it becomes very clear why it is struggling. So let's go through Google first, and then we can sort of see if that value chain breakdown analysis works out for AWS. So in the case of Google, if you think about what makes Google such a sort of powerful entity that it is, is Google in many respects is a very, very sort of narrow, tight company. Well, I talk about aggregation theory, having this sort of like virtuous cycle between users and suppliers and advertisers. And Google just ties that in such a very, very tight knot. It's almost like a physics thing, like the tighter something is, the faster it spins and like the bigger it can sort of grow. And I think that's definitely been the case with Google where how do users interact with Google? They go up and they use Google services and they go to google.com or they search in their browser. And the number of layers between a user and Google is infinitesimal. It's as tight could be. and this is a big reason why Google could succeed because you could just go to a browser and type in google.com and you could search. And it's actually even easier to use Google search now because now you type, go to a browser and you type in any term in the URL bar, you don't have to go to google.com first on your phone or whatever it might be. And it's actually the same thing for suppliers. Google doesn't really interact with their suppliers at all. People just put stuff on the web and Google finds it. Now, as we've discussed, they will do things to make it better for Google. They'll put sitemaps up, they will structure their site so that Google understands it better. And now Google has things like the answer boxes, well, they'll deliver data to those and AMP and all those sorts of things. And so you have that idea. But again, Google is not actually doing any sort of interaction with them. They're just setting up the structure and then trusting that the sort of market forces will bring everyone into that structure in a way that's advantageous to Google. Why? Because that lets them reach the users who have easy access to Google as well. That's also how advertising works. Yes, Google has sales teams and things on those lines, but those are for large accounts. In even those large accounts, they use these self-serve tools where you walk up to Google and you create an ad and it's out there. Like there's no human interaction involved. It's entirely self-serve. And so you have this entity where everything is automated to the nth degree. And like Google is the ultimate, like massive, huge investments in fixed costs and making all this stuff So anyone can use it. It can scale to all the users on earth. It can scale to all the websites on earth and it can scale to all the advertisers on earth because there's no sort of marginal component in here. There's no friction in this system. There's no humans in there. And this entire thing, it makes that virtual cycle spin like no company we've really ever seen before. And that makes them extremely powerful and extremely profitable. Now, part of that involves building up, as I just mentioned, a ton of infrastructure. And infrastructure, not just in terms of the software, but also all the data centers. Google owns a huge amount of like all that dark fiber that was laid on the dot-com era. Google bought up a ton of it. Google lays down their own like submarine cables (laughs) under the ocean. Their infrastructure investment is massive and way more than anyone else. But all that is in support of this value chain that is this very tightly structured sort of loop. So you back up though, and you compare that to what is, the value chain that works in selling what is enterprise software, because Google wants to sell these large sort of computing services. They have all that infrastructure, right? And they want to, I mean, they're not using Google's infrastructure. In the case of Amazon too, there's this myth we disputed all the time, but just to be clear, Amazon wasn't selling their existing Amazon.com infrastructure to developers. They built up new infrastructure, just to be clear. And Google is as well, but the idea is they can bring all these resources to bear and they can add on to what they have. You know, a lot of the sort of core investments are already made. And so they can build this up and they can offer it to developers. The problem is this idea, this sort of tight self-serve loop is not really how this stuff is sold. It is sold to an extent and Amazon, which we'll get to in a moment, AWS does sell a lot of stuff on sort of self-serve basis, particularly in the early days, but they have the advantage there. If you're sort of self-serving and just using these services without talking to anyone and without negotiating sort of deals or figuring what else it might be, like you just go to Amazon. Like They have sort of the dominant position in that place and Google, meanwhile, is coming along with sort of a very well done, everyone says it's great to use, developers like using it, but significantly less fully featured and they're late and they're coming along and like, and they're just not sort of prepared to compete in this market. And you view this as Google's approach to the market has been, we're gonna create the best, we're gonna have the best sort of technology, we're gonna have the best sort of machine learning. So you'll wanna use Google and then you'll really push sort of containers so you can easily move your stuff back and forth. And that makes sense from the way Google won the market and sort of consumer, but in enterprise, there's not that seamless switching back and forth. There's not simply just typing a URL in a browser or, or typing a search term in the search bar. You have to actually get people to switch or particularly today, anyone that hasn't switched, they're going to be relatively reticent. They're probably going to be more traditional organizations. You're going to have to deal with CTOs making buying decisions. You're going to compete on features like the sort of things that Amazon has a ton of features. And yes, some of them are wonky and hard to use, but they have the feature and you don't. And that's a way to sort of buy it. And you have to sell. You have to actually have people out there pushing it and selling it. You have to actually have case studies written. You have to actually have examples of companies willing to speak on your behalf saying, oh, yeah, we use. Google and it was better because of X, Y, and Z. Oh, Google's machine learning is amazing. Look at this sort of workload that we could do on Google that we could not do on Amazon or we could not do on Microsoft. And they don't have any of that stuff. Why? They've never built up sort of that part of the value chain, that entire motion, to use a very enterprising term, that entire motion of going to market and how do you actually move people down a funnel to acquire our compute services. And so they just brought on a new CEO of Google Cloud. And guess who it is? It's an Oracle exec. Because what does Oracle do? Oracle does nothing but move people down this funnel to buy the software that begrudgingly because Oracle is convinced them that it's in their best interest and in all these cost-benefit analysis and all these case studies and all these sorts of things that is necessary to acquire these things. And that's the route that Google is having to go. And so it turns out if you back up and look at sort of the big picture – If you only looked at technology, oh, Google's a natural fit for doing Google Cloud. But if you look at the value chain and how this stuff is actually sold and how it actually goes to market, how you actually acquire customers, selling enterprise infrastructure services could not be
0: more different than what the core part of Google's business is. Yeah, it's so interesting because I agree with everything that you say. The way that I come to the conclusion is almost the opposite side of the same coin which is thinking about it from a culture and capability perspective and I would use the exact same rationale to argue it that Google grew up in the open web and it was very engineering heavy and it learned that the best product was the thing that won and you could just put the best product out there and people would come to you. It never learnt the art of having to push and sell and as a result of that when you take this approach and you apply it into the enterprise market, it's completely different. And there are other aspects to it. Amazon very early on learned that in order to succeed, it wasn't Amazon products that people were buying. It was the ecosystem that Amazon was able to create on their platform, and this is one of the advantages that they've always had. They have had a capability of building an ecosystem, whereas Google, in this sense, is much more like Apple. Like, the value that people come to for Google, the value that we add is much more internal. Like, we have to create it, and if it relies on third parties to create on top of us, that's always an area in which they struggle. And as I read through your article and reflected on this, and I felt well, these outcomes were quite predictable, I think what I realized was that two sides of the same coin, the opposite sides of the same coin, that the culture and capabilities are a function of that value chain in which you first grow up. And whether you view it from the perspective of looking at the value chain, and then you can tell when companies are going to be successful or more likely to be successful when the value chain that they're moving into or integrating into is more aligned with what they're used to, or whether the culture and capabilities that they have are are going to play well into the market into which they're expanding. I feel like it's almost different ways of looking at the same thing. I think that's exactly right. Because we've definitely talked about this before.
1: We've talked about why we're sort of skeptical about Google Cloud and the challenge that we'll face. And and our core reason, and and you've always been very strong on this point, is culture. You have a different culture. And that's a reason why it's not going to work. We talked about this a few weeks ago in the context of Disney and also Netflix, right? It's just not attuned to being the sort of platform play that Netflix is as opposed to being sort of a direct-to-consumer play or aggregator play, to use use my own (laughs) term. But I think what I like about this is the value chain analysis is, without backing away from any of that and 100% agreeing with you, to get to your sort of point about theory, it's a little unsatisfying to point to that oh it's just because the culture is different that they're going to have a hard time you know what I mean because you can say about Apple too to go back to our magic pixie dust oh they just have a different culture and it's a little hard It actually probably is the most actionable thing, but maybe for a lot of people, it's hard to sort of really internalize that that's a thing that matters. And in this case, I think culture is an outgrowth of the value chain. Like what is culture? Culture is the accumulation of decisions that worked out and they become sort of subconscious, like this is how we do things. This is how things work. Well, by definition, if you have a value chain that is working tremendously well and throwing off huge amounts of cash, the the way that value chain works and thinking that's the way things have to work are going to go hand in hand. Like the culture is going to have the same structure and the same sort of shape as the value chain. Like the culture is like the floating in the air version of the value chain, but they have the exact same shape. They're basically twins, which I think is exactly what you're saying. And that's absolutely a reason why this sort of analysis matters. But the question is, how do you determine a company's culture? If you don't work at a company, how can you understand what that culture is and know if that's sort of a determining factor? And if what we're saying is correct, you can actually start to predict predict a company's culture from the outside by looking at their value chain, by understanding is how they make money, how they go to market, how they acquire customers, how they acquire suppliers, all these sorts of pieces. And you can jump from that to say, well, this has worked so well from them. They going forward are going to be anchored in this mindset and they're going to make assumptions. What's so challenging about culture issues is you make assumptions and you make decisions subconsciously. You're not even aware that you're making them. And so you have Walmart advertising a fast, faster, fastest model of e-commerce that is transparently ridiculous. But why? Because you back up. They were so locked into we have this killer model that involves our stores. Obviously, our solution should involve the stores. When the reality is it took them years to realize that was totally wrong. Why did it take them years? years because of culture because culture blinds them where did that culture come from it came from them having a value chain that worked fabulously well for decades and so
0: all this stuff is sort of all tied in together the provocative question that comes to my mind as a result of that statement is we talked about GCP hiring a new leader my initial reaction is skepticism because I mean, yes, that's the right set of skills in order to succeed. Like you said, like they need to build up a sales motion, but that's not the kind of thing that Google values. And that's not the kind of environment in which Google has ever been successful. And you can hire this guy, but it feels like he's going to be to, <laughs> he's one of my Australian terms, he's going to be pushing shit uphill because that's not the way things are done at Google. That's my impression. That's exactly right. I think someone like Diane Green, that was the previous CEO, great cultural fit
1: was going to have sort of the wrong go-to-market motion. I mean, you can go back through, you know, great CEO, uh, legend Silicon Valley. VMware is one of the most sort of transformative products. But one of the reasons why she was sort of moved out of VMware back in the day was because she sort of had a tech wins sort of approach to the market, and they had to develop much more of sort of an enterprise go go-to-market motion, and you could see a little bit of a repeat here. You know what I mean? Where, yeah, she fits the sort of Google ethos in the way of looking at the world, and so in that respect was a great fit for Google Cloud, but the problem was you needed a different sort of approach. Well, what's going to happen here if you have a different approach, but it doesn't fit the culture at all? I think there's a very, very high chance of sort of the cultural antibodies kicking in and basically ejecting this guy before any real changes are
0: made. It's going to be very, very fascinating to see how it plays out. So it didn't escape me that I asked you a question about AWS and you answered me with GCP and I (laughs) I very much enjoyed the diversion. But now that we've explored a different example, like go back to where we started.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So you back up. So I did the comparison of how does selling diapers to someone in Ohio compare to developer services relative to Google, which already builds all this infrastructure, right? I think hopefully we have done an effective job of sort of deconstructing the fact or destroying the idea that actually there's not many similarities for Google at all. And I think you can do the opposite as far as Amazon goes. There are actually a lot more similarities between AWS and the way Amazon has approached e-commerce than it might appear. One that's really important of this is to understand the evolution of Amazon, both where it started and where they were at the time when AWS came out. So first off, first and foremost, big picture, Amazon was not founded to be a bookseller. And what I mean is Bezos had a sort of, grasp of the internet and of the power of sort of scale on the internet. And he picked books because books was the best way to sort of substantiate that vision. He wouldn't sell to be a bookseller. He set out to find a product that he thought worked perfectly on the internet. That's super, super important because the fact that this is where the mindset that undergirded Amazon from day one is really, really important that Amazon was founded on the principle of scale. And the internet making basically a total address of market being infinite. That was the founding principle of Amazon. Not that we want to sell books. So when you start there, you can start to get an inkling of where AWS might have come from, right? But anyhow, Amazon starts out selling books and they taking advantage. And why did books work so well? Books are the opposite of groceries, right? There's an infinite selection that people want, effectively infinite. All the SKUs are the same and they don't go rotten. You know what I mean? They might be rotten already, but you know, sorry, that's a terrible joke. So books are the opposite. And so that's why it made so much sense to start there. And by the way, that is another way of getting at why groceries might not be the best fit for Amazon. If Jeff Bezos said, what is the single best category to sort of express the vision that I have for what the internet makes possible? I'm going to pick the category that is as different from groceries as could be. If you you look back, if you want to be predictive, you could actually go way back and look at that. So anyhow, he starts with books. The expands to things like CDs and DVDs, again, which are very much like books in their sort of qualities as far as e-commerce goes. Then Amazon makes the big move into sort of being the CPG goods generally, the everything store. It wasn't just all the books. It was now all the stuff, period. And so this idea of how do you be the everything store, though? You don't be the everything store by making everything yourself. You be the everything store by sort of being the conduit by which all this stuff can get to people. And this is where Amazon really started its strong shift into focusing on we are about the website and about fulfillment. We're not necessarily selling stuff per se. We're the conduit by which stuff is sold. And yes, we handle the transaction, all sorts of things, but we're going to focus on our fulfillment center and we're going to build up a very sort of like API-driven fulfillment center, which isn't quite right because APIs are about software. But the idea being that we're going to build a modular sort of approach to handling goods and delivering them getting out the door and putting them in the hands of sort of commodity delivery providers. And we're going to do it in a way that can scale not just to books, not just to CDs, not just to DVDs, but to toilet paper, to deodorant, to batteries, to cords, to whatever it might be. And in the process of doing that, they established this idea of what's called primitives, where the idea is you want a functionality to be as generalizable and sort of generic as possible and as understandable from from the outside. You don't wanna do sort of a custom job every single time. You want it to sort of work for anyone, for anything. That's how they started to build out sort of their fulfillment. Then in 2002, I believe, they added on the Amazon Marketplace where we've built up all this infrastructure that can handle any sort of item. Well, why can't we extend that to handle any sort of retailer? We don't have to be the only retailer. Anyone else can be the retailer. We will still continue to own sort of the front end of the consumer relationship, but people can sort of plug into this system and sort of do that sort of going forward. And you can see in this, I am in many respects describing what is AWS. AWS is we're gonna go and buy all the hardware. We're gonna buy all the processors and all the memory and all the hard drives, and we're gonna build out all the servers. And by the way, we're already doing this, just like Google, we have infrastructure experience. We know how to build all this sort of stuff. But unlike Google, we have not been building all this sort of stuff to feed into a tightly integrated loop where we control sort of all this, the touch pieces and as this highly automated sort of spin flywheel that Google has. What we've spent the last years doing is buying all this infrastructure and putting it in a sort of primitive model where we're exposing all these different endpoints that you can use them on sort of a service basis as opposed to sort of an integrated basis. And it turns out if we're doing that for us we can extend that to other people doing it for them. If you look at it, AWS is the exact same sort of structure as Amazon's fulfillment services. It's the idea that anyone can walk in, drop their goods at the door, plug it in, use what they need, and it'll go out the other side. And so if you look at the value chain and the way that Amazon actually operated when they came up with the AWS idea and put it out, it looks strikingly similar to what they were doing in the exact same sort of way that what Google is trying to do with Google Cloud looks strikingly dissimilar to what they're doing in their core business.
0: I mean, it's mightily compelling. Yeah, and this is where the caveat comes in, right? It's easy to
1: look back and see this. But the question is, is this sort of predictive going forward? You're always wary of sort of overfitting, you know, by looking backwards. But I think the point being here that the value chain matters more than sort of the surface interpretation of what's going
0: on. I don't think that's an overfitting sort of statement. That's absolutely fair. The extent to which you have managed to draw a parallel between diapers and CPU processing and the abstraction, a way of getting people to understand or appreciate the hardware. Like there are a bunch of other things that are going on there that are really important, but I certainly see your point and it is very compelling. And the other key thing, and I kind of referenced this in the part of Google, is that when AWS started, it was
1: very much a sort of self-serve sort of operation, right? They didn't start with a big sales force. And we're talking about Google needing to hire sales force and get a new motion, all sorts of stuff. That's what you need to do in 2019. When AWS came along in 2007, they were selling to like the hobbyist and like the little guy that's like in the startup. That's like, oh, this is kind of cool. I don't need to take up a bunch of investment. to Like, how did you do a startup in the early 2000s? You had to go to an investor and basically make a presentation on with a pitch deck because you had to first buy servers to actually build the thing, right? And I've written about how AWS has fundamentally changed sort of the investment, the way investing works, because now you get seed investment. The entire angel ecosystem is in many respects enabled by AWS because you only need a couple hundred thousand dollars to get started. Why? Because you can build out the entire product in AWS without really paying anything because you're paying on sort of a marginal basis, an ongoing basis. And now, why is there a Series A crunch today? Well, the Series A crunch today, it was Series C Crunch yesterday because A and B were basically the equivalent of angel investing today because you had to actually just buy servers to start out with. You needed way more money. And so that was AWS's sort of core customer in the early years. And that core customer was very highly skilled, very capable of walking up to a portal and just signing up and putting in their credit card and then sort of figuring out how to use the services. And you think about that, the motion for the customer is not that dissimilar from e commerce. Amazon's not doing any, they don't have a sales force for e commerce. You go up to Amazon.com, you select your stuff, and you go through it and you buy it. So they had the advantage. Like if Google had done this way back then and they could get that sort of initial developer, that initial adopter audience that was used to self-serve and was used to solving problems for themselves, Google Cloud would be in a much better position than it is today. The problem is Amazon vacuumed up that entire market, that early adopter market that had a sales motion that was not so dissimilar from e-commerce, whereas the sales motion necessary today is completely different.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess if I was going to pick an area or a thread on which to pull, this would be the one that I would pull because the extent to which e-commerce and that early AWS customer, which was the sole developer and not looking for the best, looking for the disruptive, I'll do it myself because it saves me a bunch of money because I don't need to set up my server room and I'll take the inferior option just because of the price, because the alternative is something that I can't afford. That does look a lot more like the e-commerce customer. That would suggest, though, that Amazon would have built up a culture that doesn't necessarily support the big enterprise sales that it is now doing. And I think back to like 10 minutes ago when we were not giving the gentleman who's taken over at GCP much of a chance, it's because that's not in the Google DNA. I would say like, this is where looking back can be a little challenging because they weren't successful at these big enterprise motions until they figured it out and they were. And maybe it's a case of you just need space where nobody else is competing to figure it out and then then you will figure it out. And now Google's coming at this too late. But we are accepting the fact that Amazon just built up this part of the value chain that they didn't have. They didn't have in e-commerce and they didn't have when they started AWS, but they built it up and now they're successful. And now we accept it as fait accompli when, okay, how does what we've talked about explain it, particularly in light of when we look at GCP, And we say, it's not going to work there for that exact same reason. Well, I mean, Amazon is, that's like Amazon has a huge sales team that's drumming up business. I mean,
1: Amazon's, the reason why they're so strong in the market is they're the default choice. People go to them. Like, and to the extent they've built up sales and account management, all that sort of stuff, it's been responsive to a massive opportunity. And how do you change culture? How do you actually build a culture? You build a culture on success. Culture is a byproduct of success. And AWS had the initial success that made layering on top of that something that's easy to do. And so they've built up and all this ecosystem that's formed around it. Yes, Amazon has worked to form that. And by the way, Amazon does have experience fostering and dealing on a sort of an account to account basis, because you they have to do that on the buyer side, on the retail side. So it's not like this idea of having account management executives is foreign to Amazon. They've done that sort of thing just sort of in a different place in the value chain on the commerce side. In this case, though, being first made a huge difference. So what i would argue is is to sort of put a, a bow around this is one the way their business actually worked with amazon.com was actually surprisingly similar to the way aws worked even today number 2 the sales motion particularly in the early days, was actually not so dissimilar either. And then three, to the extent that they have needed to build up this infrastructure, they've been able to do it on sort of the wave of success that came from being first to market. And again, if Google had been first to market with Google Cloud, they would probably be in the same position Amazon was. Being first to market is not just a matter of getting in first. It's the fact that you have the best possible customers and the best possible opportunity, particularly with something brand new, to not just succeed and build a base, but also to start building the internal appreciation and culture around this idea such that you'll push for things. You go in directions that are relatively new, but you're sort of fueled
0: by the fact that everything to date has worked pretty well. Fantastic pushback. I think you're right. Amazon first, because they have this notion of being first best customer with a view to it then being switched because of the primitives, just switched on, you flick a switch and Amazon just happens to be customer number one. That's very foreign to the way that Google does things. You talked about solipsism in the article, and it was almost as if Google realized that they had this advantage in that they had all these servers, and maybe they should figure out how to bring this to bear in the same way that Walmart's in front and therefore it should use the stores as a basis for winning in e-commerce, you could almost make the same case that Google did the same thing with GCP. It's like, oh, well, why don't we be our first best customer? But the point at which they tried flicking the switch, so much additional stuff had been layered onto the organization and it's very hard to come back and try and build that in versus Amazon. It's designed in there from the outset.
1: There's one super important additional point I think to make is that organizational structure and management matter as well. So first off, to talk about organizational structure, a point that I made in an article of The Amazon Tax, where this is another reason why I'm going to, give myself a little more credit for this possibly being predictive is if this idea that I'm making that actually AWS is more similar to Amazon.com than you think. I've been making that case for a few years. So this isn't like I'm creating this idea in response to this objection. So we will link to the Amazon tax. But one of the points I made in the Amazon tax is this structure, this idea of primitives, that's how Amazon's actually organized internally where teams are highly independent. You have this idea of all these teams have their own P&Ls. Like Amazon's the the bizarro Apple. They're the exact opposite of the way Apple works. Apple's like, we have one P&L at the top. Amazon's like, we have 1,500 P&Ls. Like every team, that pay their own way. And yes, some are expected to throw off cash. Some are meant to spend money because they're investing, but they're still their own sort of unique entity. And every team's expected to have defined sort of interfaces, how they interact with other teams. And you have this idea of the whole memo thing and all that sort of stuff where... It's very clear on what basis you're sort of interacting with and what you don't want. You don't want a bunch of meetings to smooth over stuff. You want very defined how sort of things work together. And it's been a core sort of organizing principle from Amazon from day one. And that has two benefits. One, you can see that reflect in AWS and also sort of the Amazon's other businesses. But two, it is definitely a corporate structure that is more conducive to making these sorts of bets, to trying these sorts of new things, because you have the expectation of doing your own thing in a way that's not overly tied down to something else. So I'd say one, that matters. And Google is not like that. Google is much more highly integrated. I mentioned like Google's container strategy. Google's had containers internally for years. Like they came up with the idea, but they actually had to completely rewrite it for external use the open source project because their internal version was way too sort of integrated and tied into their own systems because it's all sort of like all tied together. So like, oh, this is a great idea. We need to actually rewrite it now in sort of a modular way that's usable by the community broadly. And so Google is much more integrated. Google is to services as Apple is to products. They are very, very highly integrated. And so you have that organizational structure difference that gives Amazon, on the advantage. The other thing though is management because the one weird piece of Google's cloud struggles is Google Docs and what's interesting about Google Docs is Google Docs was first. These are all the things we're talking about. They were the first one to sort of actually having a usable, workable online editing tool that had some unbelievably killer features like the fact that you could have multiple people working on one document I mean I don't know about you but when we were in business school it's been what 10 years now we lived in Google Docs and it was working falsely then in a way that most products still aren't working falsely today I mean they had something really powerful and real and first to the market but what happened was Google Docs they won because it was better and they started getting all that sort of motion people that would sign up directly small businesses were huge on Google Docs and it was way cheaper than sort of dealing with office and all the infrastructure that went into that you could just use sign up there, but they hit a wall and they not only hit a wall, but Microsoft finally responded with office 365. And actually Microsoft started taking back share and why, what happened? What was the wall that Google hit to me? The wall was, they ran out of Technology being enough, they didn't have the follow through from management to say, "Wow, we have a hit here. We need to start layering on these extra pieces. We need to start adding on a go to market team. We need to start adding on sort of a sales force. We start to of start building out the capabilities here in a way that's approachable not just for small businesses, but also medium sized businesses and large enterprises and things of that nature." They did interestingly, kind of in the education space, but that wasn't echoed in sort of the corporate space. And now they've sort of lost their advantage where they are. And and even then, from what I understand, Google. App Suite or whatever it is, is still when Google talks about the revenue from Google Cloud, that's wrapped in there. And a lot of it is still sort of like Google App Suite and the work that they did previously. Amazon, on the other hand, they not only nurtured the opportunity, they not only had the team sort of like, incentivized properly and structured to take advantage of it, but then they were able to layer on and invest in these things to grow and take advantage of it such that they could be in the place today where they do have an ecosystem, where they do have sales teams, even if they're more sort of responsive than sort of proactive sorts of things. And that matters too.
0: Organizational structure and management, they do matter. They absolutely do. I think this is the other side of the same coin aspect to it, which is you think about Amazon's approach of always being its own first customer versus Google, like, oh, we have these containers, they're fantastic. The idea of this then going out to market is so far removed. And then someone came up with the idea and it's like, oh, but now we're going to need to rewrite it in order to take it out to market is so different. And again, it's a function to me of the like you say, the value chain that they operate in or what they saw success in, but it's like this management cultural thing. And the same, you mentioned Netflix, it's the same thing, like the consistent layering on. Yeah, and you just said something super important.
1: You mentioned about Google, they're responding to their value chain. This is not necessarily like a criticism of Google. It's very easy to point to these things that Amazon did right and presume we're saying that Google did them wrong. The reality is that Google having this super tightly integrated model and relying on technology being the best and building massive amounts of infrastructure and making everything self-serve and all the things that make them sort of fundamentally unsuited to compete in the enterprise market, that is exactly what they should have done and were incentivized to do and did correctly in pursuing their core sort of market. The issue here is not Poor management per se. The good management I'm referring to is not that they're magically forced a company to company in new space. It's that they recognized and took advantage of an opportunity and built on top of it. But to me, the more important issue is the structural issue. It's that Amazon structurally was better suited to go into AWS and management to its credit saw that and took advantage of it. Google structurally is just not suited to go into enterprise sales. And that's what I mean by that's why I get down to that value chain issue. And even when with culture when we talk about culture and companies so often it's a negative thing but the reality is is you can't have a successful company without a super strong super pervasive almost overpowering sort of culture because when you're operating at this scale you can't make all these little decisions and all these little assumptions again and again and again they have to be sort of built in so that you can push the edge so you can go forward to go back to apple like what's the point we've made again and again about apple and its sort of services beware Beware wanting Apple to be dominant and successful in services because there's a good chance that will come at the cost of everything that makes them great in products. And to criticize Apple is not to say that they are poorly managed per se. It's not to say that they are dumb. It's to say that everything about this company that makes them so good at creating products just makes it really, really hard to compete in services. It's the exact same sort of thing. And it's not an indictment of management. It's an acknowledgement that the way a company is structured, the value chain it operates in, the culture that arises around that are integral to success, but by extension
0: limit where you can go elsewhere. So it brings me to what I feel like should be the closing question of this podcast. What do you think is going to happen to Amazon and Whole Foods? Do you think they're going to be able to pull it off? Do you think it's not going to do so well? Or do you think this is just going to... One of the points that you made in the article is these organizations, the extent of the resources that they have and what they can bring to bear is... Pretty phenomenal. And you made the case with Microsoft getting Bing to profitability, which is pretty impressive when you consider it. But and again, like don't underestimate Amazon, but to bring this around to like using this to be predictive, what do you think is going to happen? Well, just the point on the Bing profitability, I
1: was kind of saying that wryly because it's not actually profitable. It's profitable if they exclude traffic acquisition costs. but That makes the point, right? How many billions and billions of dollars have they spent on this? And it's actually still losing them money if you properly account for all the costs. What I would say generally is, yes, companies can succeed simply because they bring so many resources to bear and eventually they can sort of figure it out and do it the right way. But they will never ever, in my estimation, have the sort of profit generating capabilities that their core businesses will. That's kind of self-evident to say, but maybe not. I mean, like Amazon is going to be fabulously profitable. Walmart will never achieve sort of Amazon sort of profitability. And I would say vice versa, as far as sort of the grocery things go. And so if you look at it from a opportunity cost sense, I think all these are generally going to end up having been bad ideas because you think about it. What's the alternative? The alternative is instead of Amazon spending 13 billion on whole foods, they, they, pay out $13 billion to shareholders who can walk across and invest in Walmart. Like that would actually be a far better application and use of that money, generally speaking, than Amazon doing it itself. So I'd say just big picture. I think that will always generally be the case or they can invest in a startup. This is the same thing, invest in Instacart, whatever it might be. I think companies trying to do this relative to the opportunity cost of money, it's going to be a waste and it's going to be inefficient. Now, as far as will it ever make money for Amazon directly? Well, again, if we're going to be financial types, if it's less than the opportunity cost of capital, by definition, it's not. On an absolute basis, will they someday stop bleeding? I mean, probably. Amazon obviously will invest long enough such that it is the case. But I think in general that Whole Foods will be looked at as a failure. Again, that's not to say it won't ever make any money, but I think people look back and say that they spent a huge amount of money and resources on something that did not have nearly the sort of impact that their e-commerce did, and it probably could have been spent better otherwise. And by the way, another thing to go back to, I know we're going a little long, to the article I wrote in Whole Foods, is one thing I laid out in that article was sort of the strategic reasons for Amazon to do this, where they sort of, they do want to own I think they have a big-picture vision of having a piece of economic activity generally. Groceries is a huge part of that. Not just that, but groceries is a way into other purchases. Like, you already go to the store to get groceries every week, and you might pick up lots of other stuff that Amazon also wants to sell. And what you realize, you mentioned I have become very fond of the term solipsism, which is sort of like viewing the world, looking at your own navel. There was an aspect of it there. You can see they – Doing Whole Foods for strategic reasons that benefited Amazon as opposed to thinking through, is this actually what customers need and are we the right people to meet that need? You know, I I drew the analogy in the daily update. I think you can draw it to Facebook and AR VR. Like there was that memo that was released from a few years ago and Facebook considered acquiring unity. And what was the strategic rationale? we want to own a platform. Like it was quite baldly stated, which made me feel good because I've been saying that for a long time. Like this only makes sense in that Mark Zuckerberg just really wants to own a platform. It doesn't actually make any sense in the context of Facebook's business. And I think that's another great example here. I think that it's possible that the Aquas acquisition will return money one day and that Facebook will have some sort of position in AR and VR, but will it meet sort of the opportunity cost of the capital invested into it? No, I don't think so. I think that money would have been much better spent and used by other companies in the space. And I think that is a pretty consistent rule. Did I manage to make myself unweasly enough to satisfy you? Oh,
0: absolutely. I appreciate you stating it so clearly.
1: Yeah. Well, I, actually, I don't feel bad we went along
0: because so we had no podcast last week. So we had to make up some of the time. Yeah. If I was a little quieter than normal, apologies. But I think you did a pretty good job. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. No,
1: I'm very excited about this. It's funny. I kind of mentioned this with the Disney Netflix thing. This is one of those things we've been sort of nibbling around the edges of this for a little bit. You know what I mean? Because we kind of came back to these little unsatisfying, like, oh, Disney doesn't have the right culture to pursue this sort of thing with Netflix. But actually, if you look at the value chain of where Disney sort of generates value and how they source supply and how that supply plays out in the market, how they monetize it and all those sorts of things, it's just very different than the way Netflix does. It's a different value chain. And to try to pursue Uh, market opportunity that would be the same as Netflix when you have a different value chain it would be suicidal. And so in this case, going direct to consumer with a different model that on the surface looks similar. They're both streaming services. But if you actually break down how they're going to work and how they're going to market, they are different
0: and appropriately so. Yeah. I think particularly in the context of that, it very much brings it home.
1: Very good. All right. Well, it was good to talk to you. I hope you feel better from your jet lag. I'm still going to christen us with a powered through badge for this episode. Very good. Sounds good. I will talk to you soon. Sounds good, mate. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye.